0: Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. Tonight, I have a guest, Brett Davis, and Brett reached out to me a couple of about a month ago, probably. And I was very hard to pin down on timing due to some personal issues, but I'm super happy to have them tonight. So Brett, if you want to just give the listeners a, a bit of your background, um, and, and who you are and we'll start going.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me here. Um, so Brett Davis, I'm a father, a, a husband, a chiropractor, and a health coach. And, uh, been a lot of years uh, kind of forging my identity forging my path in life and uh, I find myself uh, at a place where I help um, lots and lots of people in in a few different ways to improve their lives and hopefully like my my goal and my mission is to help them improve the lives of those around them
0: great great um, I normally start out all my episodes just talking about where people grew up, how they grew up. I, I think it's super interesting to hear a backstory before we hear where you're at now, because um, mm-hmm. it kind of gives people a, an idea of, you know, hey, that person came from this and now they're here. And um, so a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, childhood, um, just uh, anything you got, let me know.
1: Yeah, you bet. Um you know, in a lot of ways, I'm grateful for my childhood. I, I lived a pretty, pretty safe life, you know, no major traumas in early childhood, which I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, I am from Idaho. I was born in Washington, but grew up most of my life in Idaho. And I would say, you know, um, dad worked every day and mom was home every day. Um, one of six kids and I'm the second, second oldest. So we had, there's an older sister and then five boys. So I would say I grew up as part of a pack. Um, so I'm, most of the time the leader of the pack. And uh, so I had a lot of fun, um, religious household. Okay. So again, like avoided a lot of certain types of traumas, which as I've delved uh, deeper into you know, recovery work and and really spirituality and self um, self improvement. I realize that there's a whole range of early childhood and, and full life, but it, uh, different depths to, to which trauma will affect our our lives. So, you know, as I as I live more of my life, and especially as I have kids now, I realize that I'm part of a continuum that was uh, not very much on the on the violence side. Uh, as far as physical abuse goes, never had that. Sexual abuse, never had that. My dad never drank. Um, my mom, I think, has had a taste. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's kind of a, an interesting thing I was thinking about. Um, in spite of my parents uh, abstaining from alcohol, my great-grandpa was a known alcoholic. And he was also very abusive to my grandpa. And my grandpa was somewhat abusive to, towards my dad, but never drank alcohol. And kind of, there was this under, there's this undergirding that if, in my family, like, don't try alcohol. If you do, you'll get addicted. Mm. And, you know, as I, as I grew up, I would say I, I sought ways to uh, become independent and being religious as, as is often the case there was a lot of um, how do we say it? I don't want to say like opp- oppressiveness or controlling but there w- there was a fair amount of that so there was um, kind of a, I would say this a lot of restrictions on behavior sure and so then at a certain time there became you know independence at about 16 I had a job in, a, in my own truck and had a lot of freedom. And that was the first time I I drank anything. Um, I worked at a lumber yard, and I was a guy with a truck and access to pallets. So I got invited to, <laughs> to go hang out, you know. Yeah. And yeah, so that was all just kind of young, fun stuff, and it felt so exciting because of the this taboo that my and my dad had kind of placed in my mind that. Don't ever drink, or you'll know, get addicted. And um, after you know a couple of years of just dabbling and you know mostly just young and fairly innocent fun, I joined the military. I was a uh, uh, member of the Army National Guard for Idaho in 2001 through 2007, hmm. and that was a that was a pretty crazy time because at about as at about that time, um, you know, things transpired in my family that they I wouldn't say they my parents kicked me out, but they moved to a new house and they didn't have a bedroom for okay. me. So, <laughs> so it became clear, you know, like, hey, you're 18 and you're you're a little more rebellious. And I think there was even an element of uh, not wanting me to be a bad example to my younger brothers. Um, which I've never really talked to them about, but. We have addressed, you know, the circumstances of me leaving the family house, hmm. and, uh, and yeah. So the, I would say, corresponding with my time in the National Guard, there was also a period of time of uncertainty and insecurity. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that was horribly traumatic, although it was quite isolating, and it led me to have a strong sense of independence and. Um, I would, I would say even I felt like I needed to take care of myself. So if I had problems, I wouldn't, I was not the type of person who would bring it up to someone and be like, you know, ask for help. It was just, I was the oldest of the boys. I was in the army. I was on my own. And that meant that if I had a struggle, it was up to me to, All right. to find it out, fix I,
0: it. I kind of. All right, there was a lot there. That's a that's a good point to kind of put a pin in it and and talk about a couple of things because sure. there's a couple of things there. Like uh, first, I'm going to start out. One of six kids is a lot, right? So, and then yep. you're the oldest boy. You said so. You had an older sister. Yep. yep. Yeah. And
1: four younger right. brothers. Yep.
0: Yeah. So um, yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, that's a hard way to grow up. I can't imagine it i think my mom's family was six no mm-hmm. my dad's family was six and then my mom's was five um mm-hmm. and i just know like kind of how they were right like it was a lot on the parents and yeah. like you know you have you mentioned you have uh two and i have two and it's like two mm-hmm. kids is a lot to deal with right <laughs> yeah. like i always yeah. say like I, I get to play man on a man defense right like but like anybody that's got more than two all of a sudden you're going to zone and (laughs) exactly that's crazy zone defense um so that that probably kind of left i don't want to say holes but like openings for you to do things maybe that you know in my kids can't can't do because like we're really on top of them right so when you have six kids all of a sudden there's this like kids can just kind of do whatever and yeah um and you obviously sort of went that way as you got to 16 you're you know driving around with pallets bonfires and yeah which exactly. is perfect for a 16 year old right like it's pretty yeah. normal um, yeah, it didn't feel out
1: of the ordinary
0: no but then layered on top of that you're saying okay religious family um mm-hmm. so obviously you were a little different for your family and then there was this this yeah. family history there um it, it almost sounds like your dad was trying to break some sort of generational thing, right? Definitely. Like trying to be a cycle breaker and go like, hey, oh, this yeah. is where it ends. It yep. ends with me and then definitely not my kids. Because um, yep. I know that like that's a big thing for me right now. It's like I'm going to end all this trauma, right? Like I've found out like just through talking like, how far it goes back in my family. And then oh, you, man. You, you had it too, right? Yeah, it's like it's crazy. Um, yeah. So when your folks kind of, now you're in the army, uh, uh, the guard, and you're kind of acting a little bit differently, they don't kick you out, but they don't give you a place to, you know, call <laughs> yeah. to rest your head at night. Yeah. Um, Did that kind of bring up hard feelings for you? Were you really kind of just like, what does this mean? How did that affect your relationship at that point?
1: Um, it affected it pretty harshly, pretty severely for a number of years. I would say, you know, I would, I would, I'm not sure I, I ever skipped Christmas altogether, but there were definitely, uh, it was definitely pretty cold during those mm-hmm. times that we did get together as a family and, um, you know, it was. I would say the hardest part was actually losing connection with my brothers, because um, again, like we just, we were just uh, in a lot of ways a little pack. And you know, one of my earliest memories uh, with with my brothers and my dad was uh, <laughs> whenever my dad would come home from work, we would uh, do a sneak attack that turned into wrestle time, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, a couple of my brothers wound up being pretty pretty great wrestlers in high school and and I wasn't a part of that and so that was that was definitely really hard to to be on the outside of of uh my family growing and developing so you know my brother's growing and developing and I would say for probably five years I was quite distant Mm -hmm. where where it was just like maybe just the holidays I would come around and other than that it's very separate which again was a big deal for our family because, you know, we had, we had been raised and grown up quite tight knit Mm -hmm. and and definitely like (laughs) I've done, I've done some, some deep thought and uh, on this subject. And I know for a fact I was, I was hurt and I was being vindictive. Like I wanted to punish my parents, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in a way when you don't have, when you don't have much power, in this dynamic there's really all you can do is pull away right and i did it for five years you know to really (laughs) it you know make it hurt
0: (laughs) yeah so during that five years you're in the guard you're kind of isolated are Mm. you still like are you drinking what's going on Like besides Mm, that not much
1: not much i would say national guard kept me fairly fairly straight okay um you know, beyond the the few times that I I you know drank at you know like high school age, I didn't I didn't really like I wouldn't describe myself as developing a problem then. Even mm-hmm. I would um, I actually was kind of proud that I felt like I was proving my dad wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you know that I wasn't addicted. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like it didn't get you. Right. Whatever that yeah. thing was. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I could stop or I could start whenever I wanted and, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't feel uh powerless to the to the feeling in any way. Okay. At that time.
0: So after the guard um you graduated high school, you went right to the guard. What were you doing other than like after that? Like what what did life start to look like after the guard? Um like how did the next step of your life come about?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, around that same time um, as joining the the Guard, I, I met a girl, and we've formed a, a good relationship, strong enough that we, you know, stayed dating while I went to basic training and, and advanced training. So four months separation in a fairly young relationship was, um, you know, was really quite amazing to me because there was this stability that was forming that I had been missing for, you know, probably two, three years at that point. And, you know, as soon as I came back, you know, that was actually another thing, you know, my parents weren't really interested in, you know, so again, this is 2001, 2002 Mm -hmm. and a religious family back then, it was a pretty big deal to like live with your girlfriend (laughs) yeah <laughs> like you know it's kind of the norm to be like I don't know 25 or seven now and and live together with your partner like we, we use terms like partners now mm-hmm. uh, but, but back then it was a pretty pretty scandalous thing and uh, so there's uh, another pullback of support at that time um, which also included her side of the family okay so uh, in a lot of ways it was her and I against the world and uh, and
0: you made her right you're not yeah. yeah you're young at that yeah. point. yeah
1: 18 and 19 yeah. you know
0: yeah so it's hard enough to be 18 or 19 now you have like no support and you're living together yeah, yeah. I, it's like i i understand where you're at it it's increasingly hard to like just keep food on the table probably and yeah, yeah. not a great yeah. feeling right?
1: Yep. Sacrificing a lot of time in low paying jobs. Yeah. Uh, she was in, she was in university per, pursuing her um, bachelor's degree. And I had, I had a two year degree, but I had no direction for what I was going to do. And I literally, you know, I had a paper out as a kid. And then when I was about 14, I got a job as a dishwasher. And then I was 15. I got a job at the lumber yard and then 17. It was like mucking out sawmills and 18 is national guard and I had a job stuffing pine cones into bags okay. to make christmas wreaths <laughs> like the uh, pizza delivery for a little while like dude I bounced around yeah and just trying to find something that would fit
0: yeah and to keep money coming in
1: yeah right exactly you're,
0: you're doing it on your own and you're young yeah. and you don't know how to how else to do it it, it's like yeah. literally just surviving. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So how long did, did this relationship continue on for a while or were you, uh,
1: with my girlfriend? Yeah. 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 We're married today. Look at that. And, uh, yeah, we have, Oh gosh, it must be 22, 22 years together. Okay.
0: That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, Thank you. You know, and, and you go through that adversity together that, that definitely builds some tight bonds. I would yes, say, right? Definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah. Because you guys did it together when it was hard. So yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we know each other's character quite well. Yeah, and that's that's a real gift. Yeah, in a, in a marriage,
0: it is. So you were saying that you know your family had pulled away, her family pulled away. You you two are alone. You're doing it. Um, obviously between twenty you know, or 2001. And now there's a lot of time that goes through yeah. there. So like, how did you, what, what happened? Like as, as she's leaving university and you're, you know, leaving the pine cone job, like what's the next little part there? Like, are you guys just like, just by chance find something good or is like, what, 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 what happens next? Cause I know like for us, my wife and I, had similar story, like we had a lot of weird challenges in the middle um, before mm-hmm. we found our footing um, in
1: 2023, so yeah. yeah, man. So I would say, um, let me think. Okay, so I think she was in her third or fourth year at university, and I had I had finished an associate's degree and was bouncing around those jobs, and one thing that really changed my life that that set me on the the path towards um I would say empowerment was her dad traded computer work with a chiropractor so he did it he did the chiropractor's computer work and the chiropractor adjusted him and his family and you know one one time her and I were going on a date and she was like hey i'm going to stop by the chiropractor get adjusted do you want to come in I was like no I have a stomach ache I don't I don't really feel good and which just a side note I had um I had a really severe like social anxiety mm. like whenever we'd go on dates and like out to a restaurant I would I would get diarrhea yeah. and I didn't want I didn't want her to know about it so I was you know kind of playing tough and just kind of yeah trying to be a man and <laughs> stuck in a scared little boy's body Yeah 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 <laughs> and and anyway she invited me in and i was like you know i had a lot of reasons to say no one of them being money and she's like he's really nice he'll probably just do it for free and um, i said no and so she went in and came out and she's like i told him about you and he said he would do it for free he likes helping college kids and also you know he owes my dad some work so you might as well just come in <laughs> so i went in and he gave me an adjustment that really like in many ways straightened me out mm. it was really quite profound experience where um, you know part of part of the social anxiety I was suffering was actually postural, which I've I've come to learn later in life. I was you know sitting with rounded shoulders hmm. and a hunched back, and the, there's an area in your back where the nerves that come out there they they go to your digestion, and when they're getting irritated by you know compression, you get some dysregulation. So he literally straightened that out and I felt better immediately and went back, you know, maybe five or eight times and really, really loved seeing what he did. And I really loved watching him help people. You know, I'd see a full waiting room of people who were, you know, standing around looking miserable and a, and a, you know, a line of people leaving, looking super happy. And that intrigued me. I, You know, so to flash back to her third or last year of school, she asked me like point blank, like, what do you want to do when you grow up essentially? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, well, you've always told me you want to be a doctor. I was like, yeah. She's like, you like what Carl does, Dr. Carl, right? And I was like, yeah. She's like, and I know you're good with your hands. I was like, yeah. She's like, why don't you become a chiropractor? And I said, why not? (laughs) So, I, um, I was able to leverage my, um, my standing in the military to get some credits from that. And then they do an accelerated, uh, a a program where you can attain credits in an accelerated fashion. Mm -hmm. And I got my, my butt into gear and flew off to California to join chiropractic school.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And very sort of serendipitous that you're just going on a date and you're, um Mm -hmm. feeling the anxiety which i can 100 percent relate to like i always say like i know when i'm sick to my stomach because of food and i know when i'm sick to my stomach because of anxiety like it is a completely different feeling it is right and um i just i just know it and it's interesting that you say posture does it because i i myself am very rounded i have some spine Mm -hmm. issues and i'm I'm just rounded because of those spine issues, but I also think I'm rounded because, like, just maybe I don't know why. And um, I'm gonna have I mean, somebody look at that. On the
1: on the mental emotional side of how our body and our brain react or interact is when we round forward. It's essentially, either we're carrying a burden, yeah. or we're closing off. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, we, I'm probably doing both. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Yeah. yeah. And our bodies are tough and they'll, they're there for our minds to kind of uh, be a, like essentially a pressure relief valve, but eventually our bodies start breaking down, especially as we age. And then that's where a lot of people do wind up asking for help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love the story. I love how you got to your profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm also just going to say that my, so I have like a general doctor that I go to, like if I'm sick and I have the flu and and that kind of thing but sure. the doctor that I trust is actually a chiropractor and he's my functional mm. medicine doctor. So oh, like, right on, you man. know, that's who I go to for yeah. most of my care. And that's, uh, yeah.
1: I'm glad you have someone like that. Yeah. It's a,
0: and I think everybody should have somebody like that because mm-hmm. it's not like a train. What I find totally annoying about the U S healthcare system is like, when you when I go to the doctor and I'm sick it's like a yeah. two-minute conversation it's like I'm sick yeah um and they go well, what's wrong I'm stuffy okay here's z or whatever it is right yeah where my functional doctor it's and and you probably know this really well it's like he'll do like a full blood workup and then we sit and we talk about what came back and um it's in depth right and and it's yeah. you know very much related to things like you're talking about, like, like my stress and what can we do to help mm-hmm. with that and this is why that's doing this to your blood and it's just a much more, it's a relationship and I think that that is even, you know, the chiropractic work that I've had done outside of him, like that relationship is even better, right? Like those people know my mm-hmm. kids, they know my family, like there's something about time with a person mm-hmm. that I think is important and you as a chiropractor probably have time with your patients so you get mm-hmm. to form actual Relationships, which I think is amazing. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. It's an honor, honestly, to to get as close as I do with so many people. Um, I think I've seen probably seven thousand or more individual people after my fifteen years. Wow. And done um, <laughs> tens of thousands of you know adjustments, and it's not all the time that I get to see the good that that does, because essentially the good that I, do, that I do one of it is I remove people's pain mm-hmm. or, or, you know, try to, but what that translates out to is they go home and they treat their loved ones with kindness, love and respect. Right. And they go to work and they stand up straight and they encourage others around them to stand up straight. And it's, I have a cool story I th- I'm not sure if this is exactly the right time for it but every once in a while I get a glimpse. Yeah. of that.
0: Yeah, go go for the story.
1: <laughs> okay, so so there was a guy, he was a painter and he was carrying a 5-gallon bucket of paint and he was coming down off a ladder and I can't remember if he missed the last rung. Or if there was like a hole in the ground, but in any case, he slammed down really hard on his right leg and with the extra force of that five gallons of paint, he he you know messed up his low back pretty bad. And uh, I knew his boss and so his boss kind of sent him in. And when he came in, he was, um, you know he's kind of dirty like tradesmen sometimes are but he also smelled of alcohol, like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like he had been drunk the night before at least and maybe had something to freshen up in the morning. And, um, you know, he he didn't really make much eye contact. He definitely didn't smile. Um, He didn't really have much hope that he could get better. There was a few months of of pain at this point. And um, so I just, I did my thing, you know, like, I looked him in the eye as much as I could. I smiled as much as I could. I used, you know, the, uh, the power of, you know, laying your hands on someone with good intention for raising them up and, and starting to help them heal. And then I also did, you know, good adjustments and it was about maybe four visits. And he, um, he brought in his wife and his wife came in and she's like, I can't afford to see you, but I- I was just hoping can i watch i I just i'm really interested in seeing what's going on here i was like yeah absolutely come on in and we kind of connected and she was always just like she would cheer for every you know joint (laughs) that she heard pop you know she was just she was into it and um for about six more visits he kept getting better and better and about about that time that she came in he uh he didn't smell like alcohol anymore and and i i noticed that because it was had been so strong. And, um, you know, so in the next few visits that she came in with him, she was like, I'm saving up money. I'm cleaning extra houses. I'm going to be able to afford seeing you. And part of me just want to say, Oh, just hop up here. Like sure. get up here on this table. I'll take care of you. But the bigger part of me was like, honor the effort mm-hmm. that she is, that she's going. Cause basically if I were to, if I were to just do it, it would diminish it. And then all the work she had done to, you know, save up would just be—it almost would insult that. So, in any case, she comes in for her own visit, and um, she like she stops in the middle of the exam, and she's got tears in her eyes. And I was like, "What? What's going on?" And she's like, "I just want to thank you." And I was like, "For what? I haven't done anything yet." She's like, "No, for my husband." I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I do. And she's like, no, you don't understand. He used to come home with a 12 or an 18 pack of beer every night. And he would sit down on the couch and he would drink those beers until he passed out. And now he comes home and he sweeps me up in his arms and we dance around the kitchen. And I get to see his smile again.
0: Hmm.
1: And... That was one of the few times that I got to see the true effect of the good that I was doing. Yeah. The crazy part is that was when I was at the darkest point in my life. Huh. Leading up to that, um, probably three years prior, I suffered the first loss of a family member. So big family, lots of family values, nobody had died, and then my grandma passed away. Okay. Okay. And she had had a five year battle with cancer. And I did not handle that well. Like I was, I was devastated. And that was the first time where I started drinking alcohol to cover up pain.
0: Yeah.
1: And that was part of why this story might not have been appropriate for now because it does launch us right into this other. It's all right. There's no impropriety. Yeah. All right. So when I was in chiropractic school in California, the cool thing to do was to develop a taste for wine, you know, develop your palate. And I was getting good at it. And I was enjoying, you know, being able to tell the difference between, you know, different types of reds and turning my nose up at whites because they're (laughs) too, too sweet. And, (laughs) and, um, I go to a lot of wine tastings and just kind of engage in that culture. And when when my grandma died i definitely had this sense that i knew what to do to make the the painful feelings go away and that was you know from the joy that i had found in that totally culturally acceptable alcohol experience
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know like there was nothing out of the ordinary until until then you know where where maybe i would say there was never a point in my life where I felt like I had a problem until, until I started drinking to cover up pain and the pain didn't go away. And so I would drink more and still the pain wouldn't go away. And then the, the lowest point was when, you know, I, I would basically, I was hiding, I was (laughs) attempting to hide from my wife that I was drinking (laughs) and uh, that doesn't, that's, that's a complete lie. Some <laughs> I was telling myself. She knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: They tend to know. Yeah. Somehow they tend to know. And and the the crazy thing about people who, like in your case, like you had pain, and you're trying to regulate it, and you use alcohol, which is like a, it's a depressant, right? So like uh, you're already yeah. sort of feeling down, and then you're bringing yourself even further down. Cause people yeah. always have this idea. It's like, Oh, okay. It makes you the life of the party or something like that. And yeah, right. maybe for like a minute. And then there's yeah, this like exactly. really bad drop off. And then you're just, you know, you think, okay, one more and I'll get to that happy place. And it's like, mm-hmm. you just go further into that hole and further into that hole. I and experienced that. Yeah. It's rough. It's rough. Um, I'm sorry you felt that loss. And I'm sorry that it, it brought you to that place. Cause, um, It's not, you know, it's not a unique story. You know, it's a story that you hear over and over like this event happened and then I did this and Mm -hmm. I'm betting that the guy that you treated had some pain that he was trying to cover up as well. Right. right? Like, exactly. Yeah. Um, And people think that that, that substance is going to help alleviate pain, which is not, not the case. Right. You got to get to the root of it. For him, it might have been physical. It could have been mental too. I don't know. And for you, it was mental. So, how did you um, like figure it out, and then uh, get out of that? I guess is my question.
1: Yeah. So the my grandma that died, she died early in the year. She she passed away like um, middle of January, and then um, that's when I started drinking. I would definitely say more but I just started drinking to cover my pain and then um then my second grandma died that same year. Mm. And that sent me even deeper. Like that was probably the time where where if I were to say it was a problem is you know hiding from my wife but also I I would drink in the morning mm. you know to to just like get rid of the hangover <laughs> and that's that's a hard, hard place to be. Like to just not feel right without it. Um yeah, that sucked. But there was some some light for me. Um I had a dream and in my dream there was a, a woman, a old granny type that just was she, she was short and that was significant. Cause my, my grandma, the second grandma who died was a very short woman. And, uh, I was standing in line at a convenience store buying candy. And it just so happened that my mom and youngest brother were, um, you know, the cashiers and the till wasn't working. And my mom was frustrated and my brother was trying to help. And I felt this tug on my sleeve And I could definitely feel like, you know, somebody wanted my attention. Mm -hmm. So I I turned my head and I remember looking down over my right shoulder and seeing this wrinkly old woman. And she looks up at me and she taps her left cheek and she said, give me a kiss. And I was like, kind of, you know, thought it was weird, but I just bent down and gave her a kiss. And she said, kisses are the seeds of love. Plant many seeds. And... I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. And I bought my candy and walked out to the parking lot. And I remember this sense of like watching for my wife to uh, drive around in our car. And I took the candy and I hid it in my pockets. Hmm. And to me, that was super significant because I could feel the shame of like hiding something that I knew wasn't good for me and that I was hiding it from her. Um, and as I was standing in the parking lot, this like, this man was walking straight towards me. And he was like weaving, you know, kind of zigzagging through all the parked cars and walked through a couple of rows to get at me. So I really, my attention was, was forced to, to, to him. And he walked right up close and he looked at me really intently. And he said, grieving is our way of honoring those that we've lost, but at some point they want us to be happy. And then I woke up, and that's when I talked to my my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And I said, hey, I need to talk to you, I've I've been hiding that I've been drinking. And she said, she's just the light of my life, and she said the perfect thing. And she said, I know, I was going to give you about three more months, and then I was going to leave you. And I was like, I just like slack jot. I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, because I know you. She said, if I had told you to stop, you never would. Mm. And if I let you figure it out, you would change. And if you didn't change, I couldn't be with you. And I was like, holy shit. And so we cried and I decided that I wanted to change my behavior. And I started to, I, I, Stopped buying the alcohol. I definitely stopped hiding it. The first step was actually um, really owning my my behavior. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, just being very honest. Like part some of the time it was like, "Hey, I've got a major craving right now," and just saying that out loud. And sometimes I I would, you know, I would answer that craving. But when I did, I would say, "Hey, I'm choosing to have a beer." Yeah, and that change planted some seeds of, of, um, some seeds of love, but some empowerment and some responsibility. Yeah. And from there, I, I would say it's been a real journey. Like that was 10, 10 plus years ago now. Um, but I have to turn to that, to that dream and those powerful words and, and feelings that got me to stop choosing, to cover my pain and my sadness and to, you know, stop honoring those that I lost in that way and start being happy.
0: Yeah. It's, um, you know, that first step of saying, Hey, I, I got, I have a problem is a hard part for people to do. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say the way that your wife dealt with it was super, um, mature and different. Like, that isn't a normal way to deal with it. So that mm-hmm. is kudos to her, too. Because, yeah, you know, sometimes people push too hard. Um, So, like, again, like, everything kind of worked out there in, in a great mm-hmm. way. And mm-hmm. I know some people listening might go, well, Brett didn't stop. Totally. Like, he said, I'm going to have a beer. And what I would say to that is that's his story. And, you know, and I, it's also... I was talking about it yesterday somebody's It's a form of harm reduction, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I advocate for that now, and, and that's something I wouldn't have done when I first started in my recovery journey. Like, it was, I said, it was, it was very binary. It was, a, it was, you were a drinker or you were not a drinker. Mm-hmm. And but for you, the problem wasn't so much the drinking; it was how you were going about it. You were hiding it, right? And it was, this, yeah, this exactly. Tool. So, like all of a sudden you said, okay, I'm not hiding it. I am coming out and I'm going to tell you that I'm doing it. And this is why I'm doing it. It's not Mm -hmm. to cover pain. It's because I want to sell, you know, whatever it is. Right. And you were able to figure that path out. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not for everybody. I'm not saying that that's going to work for everybody, but it worked for you. And, um, and then you were able to get your life kind of back going in the, in the positive direction. Mm -hmm. Um, which i think is great you know it it was a very sort of uh you know mature and different way to deal with it and and Mm -hmm. you know that's what i'll say about that um you know so for 10 years you you've kind of been on this journey uh Mm -hmm. you obviously are are you married now right and uh Yep. Yeah. So and your profession has been going great. Are you continuing mm-hmm. the chiropractic only, or do you do other things inside of that practice? Is it just or is it just straight chiropractic?
1: Yeah. So I I do the chiropractic, which I really love. And I also do online health coaching. So kind of like your functional medicine uh practitioner side of of your I think you said chiropractor. Yep. Well, yeah, yeah, he
0: doesn't actually adjust anymore. Um, he he's yeah. kind of just gone full functional. Um, gotcha. You know, I think yeah. he's maybe adjusted my wife a couple of times because she's got a wicked bad back. But um, yes. yeah, no. So so you do the yeah. online health. I'm coaching. still blended. Yeah. yeah okay. Still You're blended. still blended. <laughs> All right. That's good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So basically, with the health coaching side, a couple of years ago, I realized that um, you know, the pandemic. So. Oh, I didn't say I live in Canada and yeah. So about five years ago, my wife and I made the move and um, it's been really good financially, but the pandemic hit um, pandemic regulations hit harder in Canada than most of what I experienced or my family told me about in especially Idaho. Like Mm -hmm. Idaho is very, you know, well, if you get sick and die, well (laughs) that's, that's your fault. And if you want to, just live your life like just go live your life and yeah um so i know some places in the us shut down pretty hard but we were locked down quite quite hard and um there was 10 weeks where our where my practice was shut down and then after that it was like masks mask mandates and then there was um potential of vaccine mandates and what it made me realize is that this this hard fought success in chiropractic was actually quite vulnerable Mm -hmm. and you know luckily because all these experiences in life I I was in a lot of ways prepared for that adversity because I knew that if I wanted a solution it was coming from me you know like that that was my core belief I was independent I wasn't always um I didn't always feel a strong sense of of uh the right to be heard or the right to just be, but I did feel a strong sense of the right to be independent. So when these things were facing, facing me as, as I perceived them threats, I decided I needed to, to change and to grow. And so that's where I did, you know, well, one of the things I had learned was to ask for help. And at that time, one of my, one of my good friends had said like, Oh, well, you know, have you thought about online health coaching? I really hadn't, but when I, I reached out to the person he put me in contact with, who was a, a mentor of online health coaches, uh, I kind of got my my eyes opened to the concept of um, instead of helping one-on-one, you could help one-to-many, like group health uh, coaching. Mm. And what was really cool is as I had – um as I had suffered a lot in life and overcome that suffering and figured things out, I realized that there's probably other people with the same problems. And so my mission really kind of became quickly became clear that my, my purpose was to help specifically men to be the best versions of themselves so that they could make the world the best version of itself. Mm Mm-hmm. And as you know, as a young man growing up in the the '90s and early 2000s, it was it felt kind of weird to um, to watch. How do I say this? To watch you know girls and womanhood being promoted and supported and and um, kind of celebrated. And then a shift towards manhood and masculinity being somewhat vilified more recently, not that that was the whole time. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I realized is each of us needs to be our, our true self. And if, if we're not, then everybody suffers. Sure. So an example would be um, when I was somewhat younger, I held the door open for a woman and she said, I can do it myself. And I stopped holding open the door for women. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But that was a core value of mine. My dad had taught me, you know, your mom's a queen, your sister's a princess, and all the other women are queens or princesses to someone else.
0: Sure.
1: So you're a knight and eventually you'll be a king and it's your, your duty to protect them. And so what I realized more recently, especially was men aren't living up to their nightly duties. They're not living up as Kings. And it's not that it's not that they're better than women or worse than women. It's that they have, each of us have an opportunity to be our best version of ourself. And if we're not careful, then things that are normal in society will hurt us. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, my, my struggles with alcohol and my struggles with being independent, you know, forced to be independent early you put me in a position where I could have some real empathy for the struggles that men go through. And, you know, men are powerful in the way that they affect their environment. Yeah. And so when we see the world not going the way we want it, we have to, you know, I guess look to the areas where we can help. And for me, that's it.
0: It's interesting for sure um what you're saying and i know that i've heard a bunch of people talk on this topic um you know jordan peterson who's from canada uh mm-hmm. talked a lot about this topic and yeah sort of you know there's been a shift in how you know men live and kind of what we do and i read his books uh well, his one book um, I liked it quite a bit. And I know that some people are probably going to go, Oh my gosh, Corey's like, all right. He loves Jordan Peterson. <laughs> right. And it's like, or, or read the book. Right. And understand what he's yeah. talking about. Right. And yeah, and, and exactly. to your point, it's a lot of principled stuff. And mm-hmm. I think it, it, to me, it almost crosses over the gender roles too. Like it's like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, to me, it was what I took out of a lot of it was like, just do the best thing, right? Like that's kind of what I just kept taking mm. out of everything that he's saying. And, um, you know, and that's kind of how we teach our kids. Um, it's just do the best, mm. the next best thing, right? Like just keep going that way. And if it's holding yeah. a door or if it's, you know, helping your neighbor or whatever, it's like that is what I think is really starting to miss from just general society, right? And yeah, um, yeah and then... your point some of these things are frowned upon now and it is like Mm -hmm. very much like well you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and um Mm -hmm. you know and and I do I do listen to a lot of that kind of talk. Um so I will listen to Jordan Peterson, I listen to Joe Rogan, and I you know and I Mm -hmm. listen to all his guests and you know I think they have a lot of valid points. Um and I don't think any of this is to diminish uh because somebody might hear it and go like oh you know they're just gonna diminish women and it's like that's not what it is it it is sort of just saying like everybody can be the best version of themselves yeah and what that version is definitely has uh i think men have a certain need for things to to do them right like mm-hmm. you know uh, most i'll say most men um because mm-hmm. i don't want to generalize and i think that that sucks if we generalize it like but like sure You know, my boys get esteem from going outside and splitting wood with me. Like they feel accomplished, right? Like there's a certain accomplishment. We build stuff. They feel accomplished. Like there's a certain thing that comes with that. And you can go back and look and go like, I built that. I fixed that. You know, and then that I think is really important. Um, By the same token, like my younger son loves to cook. So if I was going to go like, well, he's, you know obviously not fulfilling his role as a dude because he's cooking, but it's like, no, right. he, you know, he also gets esteem from that. So like, I think mm. it's to your point, supporting people in a way where they can become the best version of themselves. But yeah. at this point I worry, and I'm sure you do too about people just like sitting around and not doing anything. I see yeah. a lot of that, right? Like yeah. Young men right now are, and young women are kind of like lost.
1: And they so lost.
0: Yeah, they don't know what to do, and I don't know yeah. what that is.
1: I really don't. Well, it, a, a lot. It a lot of times it leads uh, on this trend of self gratification. Yeah. Which this uh, this I learned so much from Jordan Peterson too, and I, for me it started with listening to his lectures um, that he had posted online, and then mm-hmm. you know then there was a bit of controversy, which again like if you just listen to what he's saying, it's it's really hard to to. <laughs> to uh, to go along with the idea that he is inherently controversial. Right. Like he he doesn't go easy on topics. I wouldn't say that, but he definitely follows his sense of honesty and truth and mm. you got to respect that for sure. Um w- one thing he pointed out was that um that in general and this is based on a lot of studies, men are interested in things and women are interested in people. Yep. Um another thing he, he's he's shown and everybody kind of knows that knows this, but a lot of young men especially are getting caught in um, video games, uh, porn and alcohol. I mean, and other drugs, like, yeah. you know, I at least had the benefit of not having fentanyl, uh, you know, just lacing, <laughs> right. Lacing the sidewalks, you know, yeah, like it's, it's, um, in a lot of ways it can feel like a dire situation. I would also say, part of what stood out to me on the whole gender divide thing was I did see it as a problem that women were oppressed in the way that they were ways that they were oppressed. But, but the answer isn't to oppress men. Right. I think, I think what I'm, what a lot of people are pointing out is society has a problem with oppressing people. And until we see society change into a a society that doesn't do that anymore, it's really just like, you know, that pendulum swinging, Male to female, or left to right, right. like it. It's it's still a, a, a society that can tend to victimize, you know, people based on maybe the uh, the current narrative.
0: Yeah, it could be gender, it could be race, it could be anything. Yeah. right? religion. Exactly. It's just you know
1: whatever it is of the moment, and that is a problem. Um, I think I think people are getting tired of being divided into groups by by what they hate. Mm -hmm. and that they want to be unified by what they love and i think what a lot of us love is is each other and i think what a lot of us love is um our ability to to seek happiness and i think what people need is a bit of responsibility mixed in with that where where they can actually strive for something greater than themselves and
0: yeah i think so too and um I've kind of been like thinking about it from the start and I'm going to bring it up because uh you know this weekend my my younger son has been asking to go to church for a while and I don't mm-hmm. ex- exactly know why and I just in in and you grew up religious and mm-hmm. um I didn't um but then my mom was became very religious when she found recovery and mm-hmm. became a youth minister uh, a pastor youth you know, she led the youth program at a, a local Catholic mm-hmm. church, and she was very into church. And mm-hmm. I think part of that, being very into church, pushed me even further away from the idea of religion. And mm-hmm. um, and it's always kind of been something that I've thought about, because when I got sober, I went to AA, and, you know, I spent time in churches. And mm-hmm. uh, I always kind of looked at the community as the, the main stay for me. Like, what worked for me was the community of it. And... Mm-hmm. And then I went to a gym, and the community of that was very good for me. And mm-hmm. then at some point, I heard—I forget who it was—and I forget what podcast it was on. It might have been on Bridget Fedise's podcast, um, hmm. one of her podcasts. But mm-hmm. she—I think she had a guest on, and they were talking about like, you know, Orange Theory, and I don't know if you have Orange Theory in Canada, yep. but yeah, yep. so like that or Soul Cycle or any of these things, CrossFit any gym has sort of replaced religion and Mm. you pay for it right so like you're paying for yeah you're getting on a bike but you're paying for this sort of community and you have like Mm -hmm. an instructor who's kind of leading this you know class and you're getting this like experience for an hour you know yeah a couple times a week and you know this person was saying you used to get it for you know yeah you'd give an offering at church right so Mm -hmm. a couple dollars and but like your whole family was there you saw other families you helped each other throughout the week and you didn't have to pay for that experience and it it came with community it came with like building some responsibility right because you probably volunteered it came with all these things and this is like now just sort of dissolved over time I mean I don't know how you see it. Maybe it's just Northeast, but I, you know, um, so anyway, I went to church this weekend nice. and, um, yeah. you know, I got, my son went to like the youth room and I went to the main room and I don't mm-hmm. know if this particular church is my, my style. Um, mm-hmm. I, I definitely am looking for the community aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think that there's something there like where if people found better communities, they would then start to find those things that just used to be so commonplace. Like, is it the disconnection? Is it the fact that we're all sort of like looking in a in a phone all the time and mm-hmm. communicating with people who are like across the globe and, and liking mm-hmm. you know, like there's just some weird disconnect from reality, I think. And I wonder if there's a, a real simple way to get it back. What do you think about that?
1: Man, I think you're hitting on something super important. I think, um, you know, if we if we look back throughout history, there's definitely uh, a, times where society has been tribal, you know, and societies obviously evolve, and some are in different places than others in that evolution, and we might say that um, what we're doing isn't the most evolved version of society, hmm. I, you know, like. Uh, so the grandmother that I was telling you about, who you know asked for a kiss on her cheek, um, she she was an artist in Central Montana, and she um, she had been invited to go to the Crow Reservation powwows and take pictures, and to um, make that make a whole body of work, and in some sometime around, I think it was the 1950s. 40s or 50s, she was selected to do a a commission for the U.S. government to do um, some Native American artwork. And uh, she knew the chief, so she was like, why did you choose me? And he said, because you see our people as I see our people or as we see our people, a proud people who have lost everything. And she would tell me stories about how when, when they'd hunt They would use, they would say a prayer, thanking that's the spirit of that animal, and that they would use every part of it, and that they would work as a community to take that animal to and give it to those who couldn't hunt themselves. And, you know, because of that, some people would process and some people would just grab berries and some people would tan hides and they would all work together to pack up when the snow came and they would travel and. And, you know, for, for me, that always stood out as like a very advanced society
0: hmm.
1: where in a lot of ways, everybody had a purpose. Everybody had a way to contribute. Everybody was able to seek excellence at something that didn't just benefit themselves. It, it benefited everyone. You know, throwing a spear straighter or farther meant more food. Yeah. Shooting, shooting an arrow more precisely meant more food um and and so for me like having that sl- that perspective there i was uh, actually fairly fairly harshly um you know looking at society and just saying like hey we're we're not we're not offering that you know we got cool technology we got cars we have fences yeah we have walls we have borders um We do have, you know, some awesome medicine, you know, like there's, there's things that are like, obviously really great about society, but I would say on an individual level, people are suffering.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely believe it and I feel it. And I think that some of our best, when I know when my family feels the best and they might, you know, kind of make faces when I say it, but like when we're volunteering in our community. Mm-hmm. um which we try to do quite a bit like that's when i see the most joy on all of our faces <laughs> right like
1: that's you know nice.
0: just stuffing bags full of food for families that don't have right like Mm -hmm. or helping set up uh we're going to be setting up for an event at the school on friday like Mm -hmm. my older son will be like oh i don't want to go i don't want to go but like he gets something out of that right there's some there's a, a give and a take and yeah um you know when i coach youth sports and you know but the, the amount of family, and I, I'm sure you see this too, like I know I was just in Canada and Canada is super nice and the people were nice, but I'm sure you see this. Yeah. There's only so many families in a community that give their time out to the community, right? So it's like the same mm-hmm. names. It's it's a limited number of people who who do it. And I think part of that is it, it's increasingly hard to make a living. So I understand mm-hmm. that it's hard to carve yeah. out time, right? Like, yeah it feels like that is the last thing you want to do is carve out a time to just do stuff for other people. But I mm-hmm. swear it's when you feel the best. <laughs> it's it's yeah. like, and it's something to
1: do with supporting your community. It's probably like baked
0: into our DNA,
1: right? Oh, oh man, it is. Yeah. I mean, like evolution, this concept is actually fairly simple. If you increase your likelihood that if, if a behavior or genetic trait increases the likelihood that you'll, mate and then bring that offspring up into the position where it can also mate, then that trait will be expanded upon. Right. And community freaking matters at a genetic level. Yeah. Because, because obviously there are certain times in life where being a part of a group means you're going to survive. Of course. And, and you can only be harmful to that group to a certain extent, till that group will say okay you actually have to go
0: yeah yeah i mean yeah that's true i can imagine like back in the day like if you were just like leeching off of the community yeah like you had to go away like you had to bring something to the table again you can throw the spear you could shoot the arrow you could make good clothing you could do Mm -hmm. you know you figured out how to garden well or whatever right Mm -hmm. yep And then I've also heard the concept of like right now we get so kind of flustered mentally because of social media and and how far our view goes, right? Like this concept Mm. I've heard on some podcasts like where you used to be able to like have so many relationships in your brain and now Mm -hmm. we have like thousands and our brain can't handle it. But you can also see way further than you used to. Like Mm -hmm. you only used to be able to see like your house and then like (laughs) maybe down a couple farms and you... That 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 was your comparison, right? Yeah. Now you're comparing your life to not only like yours, but like a celebrity, and then you're getting a snippet of like you know Mark Zuckerberg and like what you know. There was just too much, yeah. and and when we yeah. grew up, we saw it a little bit. I mean, there was MTV Cribs, there was Lifestyles: The Rich and Famous, there was that yeah. stuff. But it was like it wasn't like in your pocket. Like literally, yeah. you take your phone out of your pocket, and it's like you're confronted with like I'm not that. And that can't Mm. be good for us. There's just so much that's like working against who we are as people um, Mm -hmm. and like literally trying to make us unhappy on a daily basis.
1: That's how it feels. Well, no, you're actually, you're hundred percent correct on that. Um, So if you recall, I was was a paper boy and uh, I got into the habit of reading the paper every day and that, that held until basically it got pretty hard to get, find a newspaper but when I was in chiropractic school in 2006 or seven, no 2008. So Facebook had only been kind of open to the pop general population uh, for a couple years at that point. And there was a news article talking about how they had, uh, they had done some, some uh, research and it was done through Stanford or sorry, Harvard. No. Yeah. Harvard and, what they f- tested on the users was essentially, they were trying to, tr- to determine how they could influence buying habits. And what the test was, is they would show on your newsfeed only the good things that your friends and family and even random people were doing. Uh, and then they'd sell you stuff. And they found out that miserable people would buy things and happy people didn't really need to. And so literally the, the algorithm was designed to, to show you things that would make you go buy stuff. And the reason that you would buy the stuff is because you were unhappy.
0: Of course, right? Because you're regulating that emotion with something, mm-hmm. right? Like that is just basic stuff. Like it's the same reason people drink or play video games or like what all, all that mm-hmm. stuff. It's to like, you're feeling bad. You need that hit of dopamine to like mm-hmm. make yourself come out of it. So yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, there's a,
1: there's another bit of relevant research and there's a, there's obviously a lot of uh, tests and studies that have been done on rats, but the one that always stood out to me was, uh, rats and addiction, and they basically had two different cages and in one cage they had uh water laced with cocaine and in the other cage they had oh they, in both cages they had both types of water clean water and cocaine water mm-hmm. and the things that they changed was the environment so they they made one cage like have a randomly the, the floor would randomly electrocute the like shock the rat's feet they kept the light on all hours of the day they fed them at irregular times they ordered like fed them unhealthy things Mm -hmm. essentially had no no hamster wheels no exercise and um those rats got addicted and the other rats they made happy they had a really great environment for them a way to exercise regular meal times lights out at a certain time and those rats had access to cocaine water and they didn't want it
0: yeah because they were happy
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. So when you see people who are struggling with, um, struggling with life, like there's a very good chance they are an unhappy rat. Yeah. And it's not only their fault that they're unhappy. Like, of course we can change our perspective, but most of the time we need to change our environment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the people that you're around and like sort of those Mm -hmm. feedbacks and, you know, unhealthy relationships, you know, if you have a tough conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, over and over, right. Like, with a family member or a friend who's just wears you down, like extract Mm -hmm. yourself out of that. Right. And, and really Mm -hmm. examine, you know, what you're getting out of these things. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a big advocate of that for sure. Um, Well, there was a lot in this, Past hour, I I did want to just ask you a couple like fun things. Um, (laughs) Sure, yeah, absolutely. So um, I always like to like end the episode with like recommendations on TV, music, books, anything that you're interested in media wise. I'm a big kind of media junkie. Um, Yeah. So anything that you got, uh, just let it rip. Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, One of the things I I have found that has helped me a lot would be, um, using, uh, using the algorithm for good. Okay. So I I love purposely uh, searching out things that are uplifting and then watch the algorithm feed me good stuff. And so I would say, uh, Jordan Peterson, absolute badass. I listened to a lot of his stuff. Uh, Joe Rogan is amazing as well, but some of the maybe lesser known people would be, um, Bob Proctor has some really amazing stuff on, on YouTube. Um, and another guy is, uh, Jim Rohn.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, he's, he's absolutely incredible. Um, books, I would say the book I'm most excited for is, 10 um, X is easier than two X by, uh, I think it's, uh, Dr. Benjamin Hardy and Dan Sullivan but um you know benjamin hardy has shown up in my uh youtube feed a bunch of times and quite good like i would say most of what i try to fill my mind with is people who would encourage me to um be responsible for where i am at in life and not only like not stop there but then to take that strength and move forward And those, those people are good at move, helping you move forward.
0: Okay. Good. Um, so I'm going to give mine again, it's, I've kind of stacked a couple interviews, so it's hard. Yeah. But, um, so one thing I'm just going to point out to everybody, and I just found out two days ago, I do Spotify premium. Um, so we have like the family plan. I don't even know what we pay for it, but I've had it forever. Mm-hmm. And they just launched audiobooks on, well, they, they had launched cool. them a while ago, uh-huh. but they were pay. So you had to buy each one. What they mm-hmm. did is they gave every listener, uh, I think it's 15 hours if you're on premium. So you can listen to 15 hours of audiobooks, which, awesome. which is like an, like one book a month, right? Yeah. And yep. um, so today I started one that actually uh, somebody interviewed uh, recommended. I, mm-hmm. I've never really done audiobooks. I've done some podcast stories. Um, but I, anyway, I started this one today called the uh, Chain Gang All-Stars. Hmm. I mean, uh, it's kind of like a dystopian fiction book. Um, cool. Yeah, it, it, it kind of reminds me of like Hunger Games or anything like that. So if mm-hmm. you know that series. And, and there's a Hunger Games movie coming out this week. Um, oh, crazy. Yeah, new one. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> but uh, my other thing, and I, I haven't watched it yet um but i saw it drop on netflix i'm a big david fincher fan so i loved um mindhunters on uh on netflix i don't know it's a, a show that was on netflix about serial killers and and yes of, i did yeah, see that yeah so and there was a yeah, book about that so yeah um nice. so sort of the start of the bau um so he has a new movie on netflix called the killer and um so i'm going to give that a, a go cuz nice he hasn't really Disappointed me yet. Um, yeah. You know, and, and especially in that genre, because like Seven and um mm-hmm. he also did the Zodiac movie. <laughs> like everything he's done in that genre has just been. Wait, he did.
1: That's the same guy? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. That so Mindhunter yes. Seven sure. and then uh, the other Zodiac yeah. were yeah. all like through him. And, um, crazy. They're all kind of that same feel, right? Like there's definitely oh, a yeah, feel definitely. about it. Yeah. Um, so again, Forever. probably a little dark on my recommendations this week. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, this was awesome, Brett. And I think, listen, um, if there's any, you know, people looking out there and, and do you specifically work with men at this point? Is that the the goal, um, on, on your online stuff? Um, yeah.
1: So, you know, part of a big part of what I do is just, uh, help people lose weight. Okay. Um, that's open to anybody, but the you know my legacy program is designed for men.
0: Okay, great. And where can they find you?
1: Um, I'm on Instagram at uh dr.davisdc. Okay. And then my website is helix.health. Okay. H E A L I X. Okay. health.
0: Everything will be linked in the show notes and I think what you're doing is great. Um, you're you are affecting change in people which is amazing. And, you know, if everybody could help change one person, it's it's a big deal. Um, right. and you're doing it on scale. So I think that that's awesome. And I love to hear your story. It was, uh, it was really interesting story of where you got, where you came from and how you got there. So, um, thank you. Keep doing the work. And, uh, again, thanks for being on tonight. Absolutely. All right.
1: It was an an honor. I I enjoyed connecting with you and I found that you had really insightful questions and I appreciated that because, you know, telling a story of this depth and magnitude and and importance, it's, it can be hard to be vulnerable and you made it quite comfortable. So thank you.
0: Great. Thanks, Brett. And uh, everybody tune in next week and there'll be another episode.